every year we come to this Sunday, the end of this epiphany season that leads us into a new season, the season of Lent, that takes us on a journey to think about the cross, to think about the reality that there were people who rejected Jesus' love, grace, and mercy, who rejected the reality of his kingdom that would turn the world upside down, who said, who looked and said, well, I like that power, and I like who I am, and I like the world the way it is because we're the ones who are controlling all of this. We don't, we don't want this guy around because he's going to mess up everything. And so they, we go on this journey where those people killed Jesus. They buried Jesus. Not to, not to ruin the story for you, but it doesn't last. And the resurrection tells us that in the end, God's love and grace and mercy and God's power wins and defeats the powers of darkness in this world. But we're not there yet. We turn the corner on today, which we call Transfiguration Sunday, where we read this incredible story. As Jesus takes these fishermen who have been walking around, seeing his authority and his power, and he says, come walk with me up this mountain. I, I want to show you something. And what takes place is just wild. And I think as we begin to ask some questions about what's happening here, as we begin to go into it a little bit and say, okay, so what was taking place on this mountain? We're going to see something about these questions we've been asking. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And ultimately, what does that have to do with us? And how do we live that out? So listen to this. This is so cool. So we're fast forwarding. We're going from Mark chapter one. We're going to skip all the way to Mark chapter nine. We'll go back through some of these other passages of Mark in a few weeks, but we're, we're up to Mark chapter nine. It says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. It's a small group of these fishermen that had been hanging out with him. He led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. Now, if we look up the word transfigured, um, it, 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 it's a word that just sort of means, it just means change. It, it means transformed. Um, there's not a particular way that we can understand that transformation except how they describe it here and what takes place in it. So I don't have, today I don't have one of those moments where I can look at you and say, well, in the Greek... What was taking place here? All I can tell you is in the Greek, it's simply that he was changed. He was transformed. Some, something strange happened. It says there he was transfigured before them. And then, and then he goes on to describe, Mark says, well, what, what is this transformation? What happened? He said, well, his clothes became dazzling white. Whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Now, you know that I love to ask questions. So the first thing that I do when I read a passage like this is I begin to ask questions. Well, what were they talking about? What was going on? Now, in some other passages about this, we have a little bit more about what the conversation was taking place and what was happening there. But here, Mark is just saying that they were talking. We're getting more of a glimpse of what it was like to be these fishermen watching this take place. And so I want you to sort of just imagine you've walked with Jesus, you've seen these incredible miracles take place, you've seen the way that he is changing the world, and you're standing there at this mountain, he says, come with me, I want to show you something cool, and you don't really know what's going to go on. He walks up this mountain, and all of a sudden, he just turns absolutely bright white, and then Moses and Elijah show up, and they begin to have a conversation. Well, then you say, well, why... 
why are Moses and Elijah there? Well, what, what are these two showing up for? And why is Jesus having a picnic with these guys? Like, what, what is taking place in this moment and why? And again, the question is, why does it matter? What is Mark trying to tell us about Jesus in this strange, kind of weird moment? So, so who, are these, who are these two characters? And, and why are they here? Now, the best we can do is we can look back and we can see that Mark is talking about these two. And as he's talking about these two, maybe there are some similarities to Jesus. Maybe there are some connections here that help us understand what's taking place. And this was common in the ancient world. In the ancient world, what you would do is you would say that there is this person, there is this individual And they have all of these attributes or stories or things that connect to this person here. I mean, we see this in politics all the time in America. There are people all the time who look back and they want you to think that they are some sort, in some way, in some unique way, connected to people who were popular before them, right? And they want to connect to these stories. And so you might hear someone say, well, when I was a child, I was... uh, I was caught doing something, and I was honest about it, and I told my parents what I did. You know, they're trying to connect to somebody, right? There's a whole group of people that are like, well, I'm Ronald Reagan. No, I'm Ronald Reagan. No, I'm Ronald Reagan, right? They all want to connect back and be known as that person, and so that's what the ancient world, that's what they would do. You would have these stories, you would have these moments, you would have these experiences where you're able to say, okay, we're trying to help you connect this person to this person. And why are they trying to do that? What are you trying to pull from this story that connects to this individual? And so Mark is doing that. And we, we saw that before. If you go earlier on and you see like, um, and when, you, when you see uh, um, John the Baptist, they would talk about things like this. Well, is he Elijah? Is, is that who he is? Is Jesus Elijah? Who are these people? And so even before this, we see a moment where Jesus is with his disciples. And he says, well, who do you say I am? And some say, well, people say that you're, you're Elijah. People say that you're this person. People, because they see attributes within him that seem connect to that person. So here's Jesus on the mountain. He's showing up with Elijah. He's showing up with Moses. And as we make the connections, we begin to see, ah, on a mountain. Well, well, Moses had a story when he was on a mountain. Oh, and Elijah, he had a story when he was on a mountain. There, there must be something about these two characters and their mountain experiences that somehow then connect to Jesus that help us answer the question, who is this person and what did he come to do? Because remember, we are in Mark chapter 9. We're not at the end. We're, we're, we're not at the death. We're not at the resurrection of Jesus. We're not as far as where Paul is telling the churches who Jesus is and what he had come to do. These people are still asking the questions. So as we're in the story, this is so cool. We got to walk through the hope and expectation of Jesus and sort of ignore the rest. We got to get to Christmas and got to ignore the rest. We get an epiphany. And if we slow down our brains and not rush to Easter, we get to sit with these disciples and go, who is this guy and what's happening? And we get to go up this mountain and we get to go, what? What is going on? This guy just turned into the brightest white thing I'd ever seen. Like there's spotlights going. I don't know how you want to imagine it. I don't know if you want to imagine like sequins and I don't know if you want to imagine like a disco ball flying. I just want you to imagine the craziest moment you possibly can on top of this mountain. That something is going on and these two guys standing up and showing up and they go, okay. And I'm sort of imagining, 
I'm just kind of sitting here and thinking about Peter, James, and John, kind of knowing to know what we know a little bit about them from the stories, that I wonder if they're looking at each other and going, what's going on? Peter's like, I don't know. He's white, real white. James is like, I think that's Elijah. How do you know? We don't have pictures. I don't know. I just think it might be. He's like, that looks like Moses. How do you know? I watched a movie. He's got a beard, long hair, carries tablets. He's like, I'm just telling you something is happening, right? And we get to be, we get to be in it. So anyways, so who is Moses? And what happened to Moses on a mountain? Why is he here? Why is he showing up in this story? All right. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Okay, see, we're on a mountain, okay? Now listen to what happens on the mountain. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was, was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over there. I'll see this strange sight. Why does the bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this moment, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because they're slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of Israel has reached me. I have seen the way that the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So on this mountain, Moses is called to go represent God, to go and be the person who acts as the one who is coming to save these people, to rescue them, and to rescue them from a physical oppression that they were experiencing, to rescue them from the slavery that they were experiencing from these Egyptians. Now, if you've seen the movie, you know where the story goes from there. The, the rescue is incredible. They go across this lake that splits two sides with the water. They walk across on dry land, and they're saved. They go into a desert. Should have taken them like three days to get across. They forgot the maps. They didn't have phones. They get confused. They start wandering for years and years and years. They eventually end up on a mountain that Moses goes up and climbs, and God speaks to him on this mountain and tells the people what they're going to do. What eventually is going to happen for these people as they go into this land? What kind of people should they be, and how will they share who God is with these others? So it goes on. We jump then to Exodus 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai... With the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware, now listen to this, this is so cool, that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant. The, the author of Exodus wants you to know his face was radiant. And they were afraid to come near him, but Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. 
Afterwards, all of the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. So Moses serves kind of two functions. He works to save these people from Egypt, to save them from the oppression that they were experiencing, and he, and he is giving them the law, teaching them a way to live, to live out this new freedom, to be people who, who, again, and remember the call that was upon these people. They were called to share who God is and to share this salvation story that they had experienced with the world. And this pattern of Moses' experience, God's presence of speaking to the people, continued. Until then, he told them a change would come, a change that they requested. So again, I just want you to follow me with this to see how cool this is. Moses goes up on the mountain, and everybody's watching. And again, now instead of James and John and these other fishermen, you've, you've got Aaron, who's kind of standing with some of the other leaders, right? And they're watching, and they look at Moses, and they go, he's radiant. Do you see it? It's like, that's creepy. He's like, I don't know what that is. And the closest thing I've ever seen to radiant is my wife in her wedding dress, let me tell you. Right, walking down the aisle, like that was radiant. She's not even here and I'm telling this story, guys. So somebody brag for me later, okay? But right, like you know, have you ever seen this before? Like, you know, like this moment you go, wow, like, that's radiant. Like I can't explain it, but something's happening here, right? This is connected to Jesus. You see the connection? He's bright white, he's dazzling white. He's, Jesus has something to do with Moses. There's something about this experience. But it didn't last forever. Moses gave the law, he's given the law to these people. He says, but this won't be the way it'll always be. I will not always be Mr. Radiant who brings you the law. So in Deuteronomy, we read this. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord, your God at Horeb, on the day of the assembly, when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see his great fire anymore, or we will die. And so what's happening is in the story, we can't get too far into it, but the people look around and they're like, they're like, all right, guys, I don't know about you, but I'm tired of hearing directly from God. Um, I feel like this is dangerous. We've gotten too close to things. I don't know why somebody wasn't like, it seems to be working to me. I don't know what we're doing. But, but clearly the people were like, we want something to change. We want a different way for this to take place. And, and one of the many times that God seems to peculiarly acquiesce to the requests of the people, the story does shift. And it shifts to this world of these prophets. People who would now call the people to follow this law, who would say, look, you are out of alignment with what's going on. They would shout and they would say, something's not right. Something's wrong here. This isn't the way things are supposed to be. Now, I don't know if you know much about being a person like that. Whistleblowers, which is what prophets really were, just aren't that popular. They're the people who question the status quo, who say that things aren't right, that things should change. They're the first line of protesters to go in and say, we got to do something different, y'all. And that's not really popular. And so as we read these stories, we find these people in this ancient world competing to get their message out, competing to tell the people that maybe this isn't right and that something should be different. They end up competing um, in the ancient world with, with other people and, and prophets who followed other gods and things that they wanted to tell their people. And it just becomes this big mess of people trying to get people to follow this certain way of life. Sometimes these confrontations led to some really violent stories. It's why we end up in these violent stories in the Old Testament. 
One of these prophets then that shows up in these stories is a guy named Elijah. And Elijah was really, he's a fascinating character. If we dug way into his character, we would find that he's a pretty normal guy, but God worked with him in incredible ways. Elijah had a way of doing some things that, that sometimes, I think it was those moments, uh, kind of like Peter the disciple, where God would go, what are you doing? Like, you got the message right, but man, what are you doing now? But God continued to work in him in some incredible and unique ways. Well, Mark tells us that Elijah was on this mountaintop with Jesus, so he must be important. Um, again, I told you he was a man of confrontation. He was incredibly zealous. One of the stories that's really, it, it's kind of hard to read, and it's kind of one of those stories that we go, boy, that just seems out of alignment with things, is in his zealousness at one point, he had ordered the death of some prophets of a god named Baal. And these prophets who worship this god of Baal. Now, Baal was, a, was, a, was really, when you, when you look at how they worship this god, I mean, we read things about child sacrifice that happened with this god. I mean, it was some ugly stuff. And so you can sort of see that Elijah was like, man, we can't have these people around anymore. This is too dangerous, right? And so in his zealousness, he ends up killing off these prophets. Well, that doesn't make a woman named Jezebel very happy, who happens to be Elijah's queen. She had married King Ahab, who was an Israelite king, and she was a worshiper of Baal. She followed these prophets. So she finds out that Elijah was going around and trying to call the Israelites back to the worship of their God. And in his zealousness, he killed these people, and she wants to get even with Elijah. So here's, here's Elijah's mountaintop experience from all of that story. It says, now Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So this king walks in to Jezebel and he says, uh, honey, I need to tell you something. I know I'm the king and all, you're still my queen. And I know that you serve Baal and I know that you're friends with some of these prophets and you follow some of these prophets and I, I, I understand that and it's kind of messed up and well, Elijah killed some of them. And Jezebel gets super angry, and this is what she says. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time to tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Whoo! I mean, she, she's saying, if I don't kill you by tomorrow like you killed them, May I face the same fate. I'm not messing with Jezebel, y'all. She's serious here. So Elijah did the, the bold thing, and he ran for his life. He came to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So again, Elijah, this incredibly brave man, this guy who had all this power of God, he takes off, he runs away, he says, I, I don't want to die. Gets this broom bush, he sits down under it, he prays that he might die. He says, I've had enough, Lord. We've all been here. We've all faced suffering, we've all faced issues, right? He said, I've had enough. Take my life. He said, I'm no better than my ancestors. He says that he's exhausted, he laid down, he fell asleep under the bush. All at once an angel touched him, said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and he laid down again, and he fell asleep. And he is exhausted by this journey. 
Still exhausted, he fell asleep. Again, he's awoken in another moment. It says, the angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank. He strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days, 40 nights until he reached Oreb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and he spent the night and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altar. They put your prophets to death. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out, stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. I just think this story is so cool. Because I just kind of wait. We don't know what he's going to, we don't know what, what he thinks is going to happen. You know, he, I, maybe he's going to go on this mountain and God's going to show up with a giant army and say, all right, Elijah, I'm with you. Let's go. Let's go do some more. I, I don't know if Elijah thought he's going to go to this mountain and God's going to be like, I'll grant your wish. We're done here. This, this, it's over. You, you ran a good fight. We're done. I know you're exhausted. I don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. But here's what does happen. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But it says, but the Lord was not in the wind. I bet he thought, oh man, that's the army coming through. They're going to smash these mountains apart and I'm going to jump in the front and go, let's go. Let's ride. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but he wasn't in the earthquake. Same thing, right? I wonder what he thinks is going to happen here. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. He went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here? I just love this. Just an aside, I love that in his time of desperation, God wasn't in earthquakes, he wasn't in fire, he wasn't in winds. He was in the quiet reality of a whisper. And Elijah had to be quiet enough, get out of his own way, his own expectations, to experience that sense of peace. Elijah's life had been filled with confrontation. It had been filled with noise. It had been filled with all of this stuff. And then he experienced this as peace of God. And we'll come back to this at some other point, but we already see. Do you see the, do you see the threads taking place here? Just, just, just in that moment, if you just walk, just stand there with those fishermen for just a moment and look at Moses and look at Elijah, and you're already seeing these threads of salvation. You're already seeing threads of peace. You're already seeing the way that God is working here. You're already beginning to make those connections if you're those fishermen who knows these stories. Jesus promised, he taught, he experienced, he did, he did things in such unexpected ways, and that's what we're starting to see. So let's get back to the story. Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites rejected your covenant, tore your altars down, put your prophets to death. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. Well, from this, a really cool thing happens. God responds to Elijah. He sort of rebukes him. It's kind of an interesting reality that's taking place here that he looks at him and he says, you're not alone. Elijah, you're not alone. Another great reminder for us, you're not alone. I know you're facing all kinds of stuff, but you're not alone. Man, there are thousands of people who didn't bow to bow. There are thousands of people that, that, that are ready to come. And he's saying to him, there are other prophets, there are other people. You can trust that. So that continues on, and we see God working through these prophets. And then a shift takes place. And guys, this is where it's so cool. A shift begins to take place 
in the words of these prophets and how they spoke and call, how they called for the repentance. We saw this incredible reality of this violent call of we, ha- we have to de- destroy this, get it out of the way, remove it. This is the problem. All these exterior forces are, are ruining our faith. And then come some new voices. One of those voices is a prophet named Micah. And, and through Micah, along with a lot of these other prophets to come, we hear a message of a different kind of repentance, an inward change of heart. Listen to what he says. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Man, so powerful. So powerful if you read the story of Elijah that all of a sudden Micah shows up. And this is one of those moments where you go, well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Bible said that this was what was happening. And Micah said, no, 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 no. So you get to ask the question with him. What does the Lord require of you? Well, well, well I remember Elijah. He, 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 he told him to go fight and he told him to go battle these other prophets. He told him to, to go do this. And he says, no, 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 no. This is what's required of you. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That's what you're called to do, an inward repentance that will change the world as God works in and through you. And I have always been amazed by this tension in Scripture. Amid the calls to attack those around them, the, keep, the people kept being, being called back to a way of life that was so different than what was normative in the ancient world. This call to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly, seems so different than everything around them. And folks, it seems a lot different than the world around us today, if we're being honest. And so here's the connection, and then we're going to close. If the people would follow the law and the prophets, the thread that held it together, they would live in such a way that the world would be transformed. If they lived in such a way that they were holding together this reality of God calling them to live in such a way that they were sharing his story of salvation with the world, And if they were sharing that story by themselves being transformed to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly, he's saying the world will change around them. But they would need a voice, a voice that that would, would, would call them in such a way that transformation was like a salvation and the voice like a gentle whisper that they could hear beyond the on the noise of this world. And that's what brings us back to this mountaintop experience. That's why this is so cool. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, John with him, led him to a high high mountain where they were all alone. There Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. He was radiant. He came to them on that mountain. There appeared before him Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, he interrupts the conversation, Peter, what are you doing? (laughs) He interrupts Jesus with Elijah and Moses. He's crazy. He's like, hold on a second. Jesus, I want to interrupt you for a second. He has got guts. He says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters for you. One for Moses, one for Elijah. And then Mark goes on and says, he did not know what to say. He was so frightened. He's like, he was peeing his pants. He just started talking. (laughs) Then a cloud appeared and covered them. Now listen, listen, this is so cool. I just want you to understand this. Peter's saying, let's put up some places of worship. Because here it is. We've got Elijah, and we've got Moses, and Jesus, now we have you. And we sort of have the, per- like maybe you're just sort of, maybe it's the three of you. You guys are all going to like bring this to this world, and we'll just follow the three of you. 
And this weird rebuke happens. A cloud appeared, covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone except Jesus. And the voice was clear. The authority of Peter's life, while he knew the stories, while he understood what was happening over here, while he saw the tension, while he understood the, the salvation that he saw in Moses, while he saw the law in Moses, while he saw the, the call of the prophets in Elijah, while he saw this, this idea that we should live this kind of way and love, love mercy, you know, act justly, uh, walk humbly with God. He saw all these connections taking place. In this moment, God makes this incredible statement. He says, this is the one. Listen to him. The authority of his life was now found in Jesus. And this is where we find this something, a connection to something Jesus taught. In an incredible moment where Jesus was being challenged about his authority, he did a remarkable thing. He summed up in words what the disciples had just experienced on that mountain. Listen to this. In this confrontation, Jesus replies, he says this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> he says, in all of the law of Moses, and all of the prophets who trace themselves back to Elijah and all of that teaching, he says all of it hangs on these two commandments is the life, the teaching, the way of Jesus that brings it together. In Jesus, in his way of love, we discover the call to love God in the law given by Moses and the call to act justly, to love mercy and walk humbly as found in the prophets represented by Elijah. And these followers of Jesus who experienced this moment were invited then to follow him into this way of life and that's where we're called to do the same. So hear me out. This is my closing. This is what I wrote down. We should be people who experience and explore the stories of the people of God. As through their faith, through their lives, God revealed to them what he was doing in this world. We should see those stories of salvation. We should see that God is a God who answers suffering. We should see that he is the God who rescued them from their slavery. We can tie that into our own understanding and realize he is the God who will rescue us from our battle with sin in this world. He is the God who rescues us from all of that. We should be people who recognize mountaintop experiences where God is moving in holy moments. They should be remembered. They should be cherished. We should be people called to live holy lives, who act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. But after the stories are read, we come down off the mountain and we're looking where to go next. We're looking to be, who are the kind of people that we're supposed to be? What are we supposed to do? And as we look around, as we look around, we should only see Jesus. This story, guys, this is, this is so incredible. Because in this moment, we are invited with these fishermen to see firsthand how Jesus said he had come to fulfill these things. He said, I have come to fulfill all of this. I have come to fulfill the law that you see here. I have come to fulfill the prophets that you read. I've come to fulfill the call that you have to be this kind of people. 
And he says, come and follow me. And then in that moment, in that, in that just incredible mountaintop moment, Peter, along with us, are told, just keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And Jesus keeps it so simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And what's great about that is he says, well, don't, 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 don't love your neighbor if it means that you're going to, you know, you're going to have to walk over some of this over here. And he says, no, 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 no. These tie together. These are the same. These are powerful and meaningful together. That you love God by loving your neighbor. By loving your neighbor, you love God. What a gift to us. For all of our faith to be summed up in the love of Jesus. The love that you have been given. Now go and share with this world. Amazing. And I love from this moment those guys walked off that mountain. They saw Jesus only. And they walked with him. They walked with him to his death. They walked with him to the cross. They saw him lay down his life for his friends. And they saw his resurrection. They saw new life. And they saw the world can absolutely be changed by the love of Jesus. That's what they saw. God, we are just so thankful for stories like this. That call us in to be a part of what's happening here. To see something amazing and something incredible taking place. God, these stories ask a lot of questions. They, they lead us to a lot of wonder. In all of that, may we just be reminded by this one story that in all of our questions, in all of our wonder, we can just come back to Jesus and his love and his grace and his mercy and his compassion. It's so easy for us to get to the place where maybe we think we're lawgivers. Maybe we're self-righteous prophets. But God, may we allow Jesus to have the last word in our lives. To recognize and to see that you want us to be people of love and mercy and grace and compassion. That this world is transformed as we're transformed. By Jesus. It's your name that we pray. Amen.